So welcome again. Um, if you're new to Emmaus Way or if you aren't, Emmaus Way is a community of people that have been captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're seeking to live into that good news in Durham and our broader communities, and just reflecting on a weekend where you don't need to look very far from some very troubling visions of how that gospel intersects with our social and political lives, we're called to embrace a very different and countercultural reality. So as Mark's gathering song sort of reminds us, it's one that's way, way bigger than our received ideas of power and success and significance, and yet lives out in the nitty-gritty of our daily lives and our life together. So we're glad that you're here to hopefully catch another glimpse of that with us tonight. Um, Community-wise, and as the ambient temperature of the room can tell you, it is summer. We feel like we're in the thick of that. The Reality Center's AC is working as hard as it possibly can tonight to somewhat little avail. Um, But um, being in the middle of the summer, for those of you that have been the last several weeks, there's a lot of sort of transition and exploration that happens for us as a community. We just spent three weeks in a row bidding goodbye to close friends and community folks um, for the last three weeks. But it's also a good time to look forward to hearing some different voices. Things are always a little bit different in the summer rhythm-wise, and so that's something we're looking forward to. Tim, would you maybe tell us a little bit about Doug Paget's visit next week? Yes. Uh, I think some of you might know Doug Paget. He's a great friend of mine, 20-year friend. He is coming next week with an artist uh, named Heather Lynn, and they will be leading our worship kind of in the the preaching dialogue mode as well as music mode. Uh, Doug is uh, going around the country right now with a book that he wrote called Flip, uh, which is a uh, really excellent, really excellent uh, portrait of how the gospel and faith lives in our world, often the direct opposite of the way that we expect it to play out in terms of religion, state, and society. So it'll be an opportunity to hear him talk about this book. Doug is also, um, you guys know from my uh, my emergent past, Doug was one of uh, two or three really dear friends that uh, helped found Emergent Village and a group of other organizations. He's the author of 10, 11, 12 books at this point. And Doug is, if you've met him, he's one of these, he was a former college basketball player. He's like 6'8". You know he's in the room, uh, but besides being 6'8", he truly has a, a unique vision of church, life, all of those things. And those of you who've been around a long time know that the community that he helped found in Minneapolis, Solomon's Porch, which is now 15 years old, we're, approached, we're at year 10 for us, was deeply influential in our life. But many of the things, I was uh, traveling there quite a bit for years, and a lot of the things that we do, uh, I was with them thinking about doing them uh, on, as a first try in Minneapolis. So I uh, hope that you'll come out next uh, next Tuesday. If anything, Doug is a, a, a mesmerizing speaker, so uh, you'll, you'll enjoy that. I mean, next Sunday. So it's next Sunday the 12th, and I think that's kind of the start of a summer of having a several different guests over the course yeah, of the summer, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. But tonight, um, we are especially excited in the same vein to welcome a new voice who happens to be a candidate for our bivocational pastor position. So we would like to welcome Molly and her husband, James, who is, okay. Um, and we are so pleased to have both of you here. Um, We began dreaming together as a community over a year ago about pursuing an open pastoral hire and hoping and thinking about possibilities and having questions about how that might take shape and posted a position in the spring and met Molly in May. And we have spent the past six weeks in this beautiful time of 
like seeing some of our imaginations for what might become take shape in a person. And I think it seems like to the opposite, seeing some of Molly's imaginations of what might happen in a community take shape in us. And that's been a really exciting process. That we're looking to tonight and, and somewhat tomorrow to continue. Um, we're excited to welcome her and James into our community conversation tonight um, to learn more about each other and to discern together about how our paths might intersect. And that's something like, as always, we see as a community process of discernment. So we're looking here forward to hearing Molly's voice tonight in our call to the table, um, but we also invite you to make a point of meeting her and James tonight, either here or afterwards. We'll be at the Jake's at 850 Watt Street, a couple blocks away, um, for a potluck and porch party. Bring yourself, bring some food, um, and yeah, let's, let's enjoy life together tonight. But we thought it might be nice within this space to kickstart this getting to know process a little bit by actually letting Molly tell us a bit about herself. So SK and Molly. So yeah, um, a number of us have gotten to know you, but we wanted to let everybody who hasn't heard your voice or seen the things you've shared with us um, just get to know a little bit about you. So just to start, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm Molly Bremot Waddell, born and raised in East Tennessee in a tiny town outside of Knoxville, Jefferson City, Tennessee, not Johnson City, Tennessee, even smaller than that. Um, I am the wonderful child of two parents. Um, my dad is a professor of theology, so I was born and raised on this liberal arts college campus um, that really shaped me. And I didn't realize how having a father who talks and does theology for his job would so shape my life and my calling. Um, so born and raised there, I moved to Winston five years ago um, to enter at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Um, so I entered in 2010, graduated in 2013, and received a call um, at Knollwood Baptist Church. So I am born and bred Baptist, not Southern Baptist. Um, I was always in a setting where women could always be called and could always fulfill and live into their identity as God's beloved child in whatever form that took, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, and so I've been serving at Knollwood for two years and met James two years ago, actually, on the day that I was called to Nolid. It's kind of trite and perhaps ironic that a minister met her husband in the church narthex at his mother's ordination. Um, so can't get more cliche than that, I suppose. But um, we have been journeying together for two years and got married in January of this year. Um, and he makes me a better human being. And I think we do life and do God's kingdom work better together than we do apart. So that's a bit about me. Well, thank you. And kind of um, just jumping off of that, what has shaped you in your life as a pastor? Yeah. So um, like I said, I was born and bred in East Tennessee um, in a moderate church in a pretty conservative area. Um, and so I would say I was always raised knowing I could be a minister, um, but I was really terrified of that because I also knew being Baptist in my heritage um, 
that female ministers were often just children's ministers. And I never, and there's nothing wrong with being a children's minister, but little kids kind of terrify me, and they always have. And so I was like, this is not good. My gifts are not with the little ones. Um, And so it was really in college when I went to Carson Newman, where my dad taught, Um, In my junior year, I interned for an advocacy organization in D.C. called the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, who they're the leading advocacy organization for separation of church and state that is affiliated with a Christian denomination. And while there, I went to a church that was pastored by two women, um, Amy Butler, who is now the pastor at Riverside, and Leah Grunset Davis. And it was in that space Um, where I saw church for the first time done differently, um, where I saw community really come to life, and this idea of diversity being a blessing in the church community, and that having women's voices present um, is a real gift and not a hindrance to the kingdom of God. And then um, kind of three months later after being in D.C., I had the opportunity to study abroad outside of Cape Town, South Africa, for a nonprofit, are you from Cape Town? What part? Okay, yeah, Durban. Very fun. So, for a semester, for kind of the summer semester, I was there studying abroad and chose to go back um, for my last semester of college. Um, was able to take online classes, and I um, volunteered for a nonprofit working for HIV and AIDS. And it was the first place and first time in my life where I was the minority. Um, And it was in Cape Town, South Africa, where kind of being so far away from everything that I, as Molly, and as someone who felt called, was having to wrestle with God's kingdom and the inequalities that I really couldn't fully see in America due to the societal structures at place. Um, And so my heart really broke there, and I realized... But though I am forever grateful for that experience and that place, my voice was in shaping and walking alongside people like me who every day, unless we're somewhat intentional about it, can only mingle with people who think like us, who look like us, who vote like us, and the list can go on. Um, And so right outside of Cape Town, I started at Wake, and that first the first Sunday I was in Winston, um, heard about a church called Green Street United Methodist Church in Winston, and that church changed my life. Um, it, re, it reminded me um, and really showed me that the church could be a place of change and of true community and a place that stood up for all of God's people, and that was more than just a place we come for social interaction and services, kind of like a country club, which I had been a part of a lot. Um, And Green Street in Winston was always on the cutting edge of God's love and of realizing that Jesus was a political figure and not afraid of that and what it might mean for the church or for the budget. And I was there for three years. And every Sunday, I learned something new. Um, And in my work there, I was over the welcome table, which was a meal for the community. And 
befriending people who before I probably saw but didn't know their names um, really transformed me and who I am. But then I will say my current call at Knollwood Baptist has been great because I kind of at Green Street got into this progressive, justice-centered bubble that I loved and felt so comfortable in and alive in. And I had a mentor tell me, Molly, you really need to know and learn that wealthy people are God's children too. And that those that vote differently than you are not necessarily bad. And so Noel had called, and I've been serving a congregation that's right by the country club. And um, these people have touched me and have shown me that the kingdom of God breaks in when we have conversation and relationship with people that we would rather ignore. And we probably all in our minds can think of people we would rather ignore or not do life with. Um, And so that really has been the growing edge. Um, And most definitely Wake Forest University School of Divinity to be in a place that is academically rigorous as well as allowing the opportunity for us to deconstruct our theology and faith and rather than saying, okay, here is the structure that we want you to rebuild your theology and your faith and your doctrine in, saying here are different avenues and pieces that you can take. And as you wrestle with your faith and your understanding of God and as you wrestle with the academics and the theologians and those that you are reading, create your own, like create your own box and know that that is good. Um, So... Yeah, that's a bit about me. Also about me, I'm extremely clumsy, so you'll probably see that pretty quickly um, if I come into this community. And, yeah, I think that sums it up. Thank you so much, Molly. Um, We'll be hearing more from you later. We're excited about that. And I'll turn it back over to Mark. I will frequently get up here and, and say that that I have tried to choose uh, to choose song material uh, for the week that sort of anticipates where I think the dialogue may go. Um, but but a lot of times that's still informed by um, meetings that I've had a chance to have with Tim or with Josh when he was around, and and um, Ellen is also in this group, this text team, and we'll sort of talk through this stuff. This week we didn't get to have it, so I'm having to sort of, like Tim and I are trying to do a, like a mind meld across the country mm-hmm. while he was in Los Angeles. So I, hopefully these songs will get us uh, will get us where I think we're going to go. Um, but I like, I like this song here a lot because, um, you know, I like to deconstruct July 4th, and so this song I think is a song about America, um, but it's a song about... Uh, song about difficulties with America. Babe, they say this world is better than the last. I wouldn't know no way of living in the past 
there was a garden, streets of overflow. From the golden gates to the east black states, you can hear creation grow. There is a shining beacon out across the amber waves. It lies hidden on teeming shores beneath the burned out Chevrolets. And the eyes that scattered high rise hopes across the fruited plain. See the TVs growing through the projects, through the greasy window panes. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall. Baby, it's a long. That are poor. History bows to coverage. Moderation bows to more. The far side of the ocean is the far side of the tracks. All God's children learn to build, learn to watch their backs. They're our felons out in the prison yard. Imagine if they're in the The keeper of peace Another day, another chance to curse away the doubt Another night, another thousand points of light go out Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall And fools got to work, and you can't stop them with bitter tears and golden rules. It's a race to stay alive, baby. It's lawyers, tax, and steal to the life that you are living. Is the thing you never feel. Well, baby, they say that this world is better than the last. I would. Baby, it's a long way.
Just written, just written. God bless America. In uh, 1938, I think. And uh, Woody Guthrie was um, was kind of upset by that song because he felt that it didn't really very adequately um, didn't really very adequately address the problems of the day. Didn't really wasn't really necessarily a song for everyone. And so he, uh, he wrote this song sort of in response to, uh, to God Bless America. And originally he called this God Blessed America, and then he decided to change it to This Land is Your Land. So everybody knows this song because everybody went to elementary school. Um, <laughs> except, for, except for Andrew and Wendy. Don't, you, may, I don't, you even probably know this song. <laughs> even growing up in South Africa, you may know this song. Um, anyway, so... Please sing along with us. Um, these last two verses are verses that you may or may not have sung, depending on which elementary school you went to. If you went to Durham School of the Arts, you probably did sing these last two <laughs> verses. If you uh, went somewhere else, maybe not so much. But, um, but I, I do think that this song, um, I, I think that this song is sort of a prayer in a lot of ways, um, a prayer of sort of aspiration, a prayer of hope that, uh, that we actually could maybe aspire to this uh, vision that, that Woody Guthrie has. I was walking a ribbon of highway I saw above me that in the skyway I saw below me a golden valley and this land was made for you and me I roamed and rambled Sparkling sands of her diamond deserts, and all around me a voice is sounding. This sand was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. sun came shining and I was strolling and the wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling as the fog was lifting a voice was chanting 
Fantastic, Marcus, as usual. Hey, it's good to see everybody here uh, on even a very, very, very hot afternoon. Uh, it's a delight. It's a delight to have Molly James with us. And if uh, this is your first time with us, uh, we are the type of community that we say every week, our dialogue changes every time there's somebody that's new to our community. So feel free to feel very present as a part of our discernment, our life, our encounter today with uh, the story in Exodus and all of those things. But let me give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you if If you're around somebody you don't know, certainly introduce yourself, and I'll give us a shout to jump back into the dialogue in about two minutes. So offer each other the peace of Christ. So I am back from L.A. uh, last week, and I was so bummed to miss the busman farewell. But I actually, I think if you listen really quietly for a second, you might hear a a quote of Foucault off in the distance, uh, 90 (laughs) minutes away. Josh is reading something. He's knee-deep in Deleuze, and he's channeling it to us. So if Mark just jumps up and plays some philosophical, critical theory, cultural studies tune, you'll know that Josh, actually, they said hello. They uh, yeah, and, and Sarah's eye roll. And if I use any, and I'm not planning on it unless it's an accident, but if a French term like derive or de tournament comes out, then you'll hear Sarah, uh, well, you'll hear profanity uh, down in, in Fayetteville. So hopefully we'll avoid that. Um, but anyway, it was great to be in LA. I'll give you guys a report on this. 
in a week or two uh, 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 at some point, but I was at a... Um, a gathering for community organizers uh, sponsored by Durham Can and their parent organization, IF. Uh, it's an amazing eight or nine days. The, it's a great program. The most famous graduate of this program is uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. So this was kind of uh, the community organizing training they did to, to win the ire of Sarah Palin, I guess, uh, uh, eight years ago. But, uh, but anyway, great, great time. And uh, some of the things we'll talk about comes from that week, but we'll continue kind of wrapping that up some. Um, I want to, and you won't remember this, but hopefully this little transition will give you a, a slight recollection of this. Two weeks ago, we were wrapping up three weeks of conversation on Acts 8. And we were looking at this radical encounter between Philip, an apostle, and an Ethiopian eunuch. And we read that story every way we possibly could read it. We read a kind of a dominant white male reading. We read an identity kind of reading on this from, uh, from kind of a, a black reading to a queer reading of it. And then we finally did a, a much more kind of all possible identities reading of this text. And that's actually a, a, of, of our podcast. That's one that I would recommend that you check back on two weeks ago because we discussed things that are really significant to our understanding as a community. But one of the things that came from that that we saw that was so interesting to us is we had this traditional evangelistic encounter between an apostle and a man from a different culture. And that was the normal reading to this, but what we saw in the story was how deeply transformative the encounter was to the apostle, and how deeply transformative the encounter was to the church at large that was just beginning to understand what it meant to be a community for the whole world. And, and part of that, the thing I wanted to remind you about from that is this idea that encounters and relationships can be absolutely transformative, not just to our lives, but every bit of our lives, all parts of our communal lives, our vision, our imagination, our hopes and dreams of who we are and where we're going. And that's going to be the conversation tonight in terms of relationality and how it impacts us. I also want to remind you of another conversation that we had uh, repeated many times a few months ago when, uh, if you remember my, my famed German theologian whose name I, but Brian's here tonight, so Brian just wink evilly at me if I get it wrong, but Dorothy Surle. Or that person, um, we, uh, we were discussing her notion of this idea of sin and being moved from more than just an individual thing, but a deep blight in the relationships of world society, uh, people to each other, people to communities, communities to creation, something that inhabits the very being of this planet and our relationships. And as she put it in that definition, freezes those things into a non-working state. And let me throw this to you as a quick question. We'll just take a second on this. But if you remember that conversation, give me a couple of nuggets of what this sense of sin, that which freezes our relationships, what does it do in actuality to the way that we relate to other people? What, how do we relate to others uh, in the sense of the way relationships have been destroyed by sin? Can you give me a couple examples of what happens to our relationships in that mode? What do we do? We compare. 
right? Oh, I'm sorry, Rachel. Um, Yes, so people become either assets or liabilities, but our relationships become instrumental, right? So I, I look at Rachel, I think, what does knowing Rachel get for me? Or maybe for Luke or somebody else, but it becomes, it becomes an exchange. Excellent. What else? I'm sorry, Wendy, I couldn't find you. Okay, great, great. Others? talked about this like cementing quality this sort of like you know you, you, you don't just pull into yourself but you the, the possibility for change for new relationship for growth for all, all of that sort of stuff disappears yeah I mean in the, wouldn't this be your worst nightmare think about the most embarrassing thing that you've done recently or forever right something that you said entirely wrong or acted entirely out of character and what if people kind of snapshotted that moment that's when, because I'm sitting there thinking of Skylar. I'm thinking of like the worst moment in her life. I mean, that would, I mean, we don't want that, but that's the kind of thing that happens. And we do that sometimes out of comparison, out of a desire to create a hierarchy of people. So these are the things that we do, right? Uh, this is how relationships get destroyed. We get into a competitive environment where people become assets or liabilities or obstacles. They become someone that we measure ourselves against. And so what is lost is the true ability to relate to each other. So this notion of, the, as, as we were describing of sin destroys this sense of relationality. And what I want to do today is I want to talk more about the power of relationships, but move it into an even greater kind of theological context and move from how relationships get disrupted to actually great possibilities and even power in relationship. So moving from kind of this negative things that happens for relationship, let's raise the question today about what can happen. What are the possibilities? What are our greatest hopes? Hopes in relationship. Flip on your page to Exodus 5. Um, we're going to read a scene from that. Let me just give you a quick setting for this. Is that um, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the world, that's actually the real radical part of this, is, is preparing for the liberation of the people of Israel who have been enslaved in Egypt. And so the scene is being slowly set for that liberation. We have Pharaoh cast as uh, the defiant obstacle, the one that will show the power of God in resisting God's ways. We have the characters who will lead Israel, Moses who will be the dynamic prophetic figure, Aaron who will be the spokesman. Those characters are kind of set out in this scene. Um, but if someone would, as we kind of pick up the text today, um, each of these leaders are being kind of formed and trained in the conversation that we read today to play their role in what becomes, if you were a Sunday school kid, the plagues of, of, of Egypt. Uh, so would somebody give me a quick read of that text? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go, so they may celebrate a festival in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should eat him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God. The people fall upon us with questions or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, 
Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued. Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, Let us go, offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So the taskmasters and the supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather straw, stuff for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. And the supervisors of the Israelites, who were as taskmasters, were set over them and were asked, Why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Thank you, Chelsea. So we get the first ask of many asks that are going to be laid to Pharaoh. And this one is simply, rather than the familiar, let my people go, this is more like, let my people go on a long weekend. I mean, it's a holiday, three or four days, a little worship, a little drinking, a little fun. This will be something good for everybody. Um, but as the, the scene unfolds, uh, Pharaoh says no. He says, actually, he, I wanted to say forget it, but um, he actually says it this way. Don't you ever forget this inane and seditious demand uh, by heaping on this incredibly punitive measure of the people. They will, as slaves, make the same quota of bricks, which I imagine straw is some aspect of brick making. Um, so they're going to make bricks, and there's not going to be straw, and, and they're going to have to make the same amount of bricks. Notice that the punishment here is incredibly dehumanizing. Uh, what Pharaoh has done is he's made the impossible the norm, and the Israelites are inevitably going to fail. All of us have been in that mode before where somebody asked a boss, uh, a, a department chair, uh, an advisor, a, a spouse, a friend, asked something of us, and we looked at it and we said, there's nothing but failure for me in that request. And so this is the Pharaoh's posture to the Israelites because they basically asked for a long weekend off. Now, the punishment here is a bit of a clue as to what Pharaoh guesses or perceives. Pause for a second on this. What do you think Pharaoh is thinking when this request comes that we want three days to worship in the wilderness? I'll give you my hypothesis on this. Um, I don't think in any way is the Pharaoh foolish. Um, I don't think that the Pharaoh... Um, I think the Pharaoh actually prefers straw in his bricks. Um, I, I think that he has no interest whatsoever in substandard building supplies. I don't think the Pharaoh is dumb. What I think he thinks is this request to go out into the wilderness is dangerous. It's dangerous for him. It's dangerous for his people because it's an antecedent to revolution. 
We get in the text that the Egyptians have done a little counting and they realize that the Israelites actually outnumbered them, which is the fear of every oppressive state, right? The oppressors are usually the minority and the oppressed are usually the great number or the multitude. So the Pharaoh imagines that this might be the seed for revolution or As was the case, it will also be the starting point for a greater cry for liberation. And of course, the Pharaoh, you don't get to be that kind of politician without understanding how it works. And he understands that what the Israelites are going to ask for is a destruction of Egypt's slave economy. Like many, many great nations, they are founded on a slave economy. When you don't have to pay people for their labor, there's a tremendous amount of profit. There's a tremendous amount of control of what they build. So he's fearful of revolution. He's fearful of liberation. Now, let's consider the wilderness for a bit. Um, what do you think would happen? Put yourself in the scene. What happens in the wilderness when oppressed and enslaved people get a little time off? They get a long weekend. What happens when people like this get to worship in their own language, and in their own rituals. They decode the Egyptian, the, 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 the gods that are imposed upon them, and they worship their own gods their own way. What happens in the wilderness? They get a national identity. Okay, so there's, there, there's definitely, we talk about this a lot here, there's going to be some identity work. And I'm going to guess that Egyptian isn't like the number one starting point. Brian, are you a good Egyptian? I think they'll talk about other stuff. Yeah, what else? What happens? It's like a pep rally. What kind of pep rally do you think? In high school, when you're rooting for your team to go demolish the other team, it's the same principle. They're going to a huge pep rally. Yeah, this, there's going to be some fired upness, I think, for sure on this. They are, they're definitely not only forming an identity, but as you say, an identity up and against something else. And the high school pep rally is the team you're going to destroy, the horrible people from cross town that you've been heaping all sorts of harangues and slaying about. Yes, absolutely. What else happens on this little soiree? Well, it probably will Yeah, their stature, they've negotiated something. Uh, It shows that they have power. We spent a lot of time in L.A. talking about that. You successfully negotiate living wages. The mayor understands you've got power. Yeah. S.K. I'm thinking they're going to air some grievances. Yes. They might consider what life could be were they not enslaved by the Egyptians. So there might be some imagination. There might be some anger. Anything else that's happening out here? You have to wonder from Pharaoh's perspective, I mean, he's got his pantheon of gods, etc., you know, and like, whatever he thinks of the Hebrew God, maybe you don't want to let them go through the elaborate ritual to, like, call on this particular deity, right? Because, you know, like, maybe that's just not the best thing, like, cosmically, for his, for his power. What is frightening about the Hebrew God? What, 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 that, you don't want that genie out of the box at all. Why not? Got a bad reputation. Bad reputation. <laughs> Wait a minute, I think I'm in a folk song here. <laughs> bad Brown, bad Yahweh or something. But yeah, so he's got a bad reputation. 
From Pharaoh's perspective, sure. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Yeah, he makes these horrendous claims to not be a regional god. You know, he's not like the, the, the toughest god in a region. He makes these sovereign claims of creator of earth, which kind of gets in the way of other people's gods, right? It, it, that in itself is unacceptable speech in Egypt, I'm sure. So think about these people. For three days, they want to breathe. They want to think. They're going to laugh. They are going to drink a bit. Um, they're going to worship. And in their worship, they're going to embrace possibilities and realities beyond their plight. They're going to start having an identity beyond the people that were enslaved in Egypt. They're also, they might read something old. They might find parts of their story in their scriptures and see that they were promised something else, created for something bigger. Uh, they may begin to reclaim their history and to begin to reform an identity that's different. Because what does worship tend to do? When it's done passionately and done with integrity and authenticity, it restores our sense of humanity, our sense of being created by God, our sense of mission and purpose, our sense of hope. Those are all the things that we hope come out of gathering for worship. And I think what happens is that Pharaoh knows this. He knows that this is the worst thing possible. So what does he do in his punishment is if they are going to find their humanity in a three-day trip, he is going to dehumanize them even worse. And I think the punishment is a clue to the understanding that Pharaoh has of what could happen in the, in, in, in the wilderness. In fact, he punishes them to make them feel less human even against his own interest. Now, think about what's been happening in our world. In the last like week, two weeks, three weeks, from Charleston to how many black churches have been burned either accidentally or by arson in just the southeast in the last two weeks? I've lost count. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Why do people burn black churches? Yes. And why, who do they want to scare and why do they, why do they think that might be frightening, Elizabeth? Um, because they're kind of saying we have power over you. We're not going to allow you to worship. Yeah, and what might happen in that black church? I was just going to say, as far as hope, like, you know, how we worship traditionally a place for hope and community and connection. And if it's not there, all of that is at risk. Or at least that's what they want to instill yeah, so these churches represent the wilderness, right? These are the places where you have hope, you are empowered. These have been the meeting places for politics, for vision, for escape, for the place where you have a sense of meaning. This has been the, the, literally the construction of human beings out of enslavement. And if you want people to remember that they should be enslaved or at least just remember their place, right? You burn the place that they would go to get the seditious story. And so we're having in our culture right now, our, our post-racial culture, by the way, there's not racism, uh, but in our post-racial culture, we're having people burn black churches because of the very same principle of what the people of Israel experienced is the idea is to take away hope, politic, power, and kingdom vision at its very source. So... Let's think about this. The kingdom of God that we are trying 
to build as a community, trying to participate in as a people, trying to find others who are living in this. This is something that is entirely, entirely the opposite of Pharaoh's mission with the people of Israel. He does not want them to envision those things at all. Uh, The kingdom of God is really an antithesis to the dehumanizing experience of slavery in lots and lots of different forms. Let me draw a little quick picture. This comes from L.A. i got to do this really fast. Hopefully I have my little... I will not draw a naked dinosaur this week. So you're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a dinosaur without pants. This will actually be, it's just circles, Chelsea, so you are safe tonight. But one of the things that we've talked about when I was out in L.A. is how our world has changed. Um, so this is a portrait of kind of the world 50 years ago. Big circle. Let's call this the civic circle. This is the place where people find their meaning. And and what I mean by civics, I mean town halls, town meetings, unions, masons, clubs, churches, the places where people encounter each other, and that's where they find their sense of meaning. It's where they get the story. It's where they sit around and they figure out they're an Eford, and this is what Efords do, and this is where they figure out what it means to worship and be human beings. And, And this by no means is a an effort to take us back somewhere. But this is kind of the way it was. And then there's two smaller circles as a part of this big, you know, the town basically ran people's life. What do you, you take a guess what the small circles are? Yeah, I'm going to put home and civic. Let's call one of them government. And so, you know, government was small. You know, it took three months for the letter to get there and you didn't have to obey the command once it got there because it's changed. And the other is the market. I mean, there, you know, you might exchange stuff, but we're all a town. We're living together. We're trading stuff. We're, you know, I don't want to put something over on the Williamses too badly, right? Because I live next door to Mark and Katrina and they might be mad. And so I'm not in this kind of uber competitive environment. So if we take the big circle, the civic world and government and the market, and we find something to race with, this thing right here, Somebody redraw it. Where's Josh Bushman when I need him? What's the big thing now? The market. The market is what kind of drives our lives. And what are the slaves of the market? Government. And it's bigger, but not so huge. And then how big should the circle be for civic organizations? Really tight. Jenny, how's your union meeting? How did it go last week? (laughs) You weren't in a union meeting? How about the Rotary, Mark? Was it great last week? Who does PTA? (laughs) Chelsea does, but you were a teacher. It doesn't count. So the civic world is really, really small, and it's getting smaller. And so what happens to relationship in this world? What I mean, if, if market is the dominant way that we relate to each other. The market is bigger than nations, all of those things. How do we relate to each other? Competition. Competition. Scarcity. Scarcity. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Stock goes up, stock goes down. How else? It's the same kind of instrumental stuff that Rachel was talking about. Sure, absolutely. 
Yeah. And, you know, we talked about, I talked about Skylar thinking of like only thinking of Skylar's worst moment in her life. What can the market tend to do us for us as an entity of people? It can reduce us, maybe not to our most embarrassing moment, but the one thing that we produce that other people buy, right? So it turns us into not a diverse entity, but something that is just produced. So that's kind of the world change we're in. Here's the last point for today. Imagine the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was the antithesis to the type of relationships that we described, the kingdom of God does not fit well in this paradigm at all. Because it's asking for a different type of relationship. Non-instrumental relationships. Deep intimacy with each other. Not thinking about exchange or comparison. It means that all the moms in this group are not going to go back and pick up their kids and start comparing SAT scores or pre-kindergarten scores or who's tallest or who can dunk or all of those. You may do that, but don't do it. I mean, that's, it, that, that's the way we're being trained to relate with each other. So here's where we're going with this conversation is we're dreaming as a community in terms of relationship and doing some dangerous things. We want to go into the wilderness and do the things that Pharaoh has forbidden that we do. Let's mention a couple of dangerous things. Tonight, having Molly is dangerous for us because Molly, she might have some ideas. She might dream of some stuff that we haven't done before. She may have hopes for us that are bigger than her own hopes. That's dangerous for us. She might say, I don't want you to live that way. The kingdom might take you into a different space. We've done that as a community with faith teams is that we've gathered around people that society says, let's, let's create fear around this rather than deep relationship. Uh, SK and their leadership team is leading us into relational meetings as a part of our life together. We'll talk more about what that is, but I want you to put that in the frame of this is dangerous business for us. As a community, we're in a space as a 10-year-old community of people that we're heading into the wilderness again in the best sense of the word, the best sense of the party, the, the fun, the worship, the being. And so we'll talk more about what are we organizing ourselves to? But hold on to that concept of living in a wilderness where we're forming identity in a way that reconstructs a world that's different than the way it's been constructed to us. Mark, are you ready to lead us into confession and absolution tonight? a song that um, I think I think on the surface this this sort of seems like a fairly individualistic song rather than a um, community song but I think at the same time um, at the same time I think that I think that singing a song that seems um, that, that seems individualistic but singing it together and sort of hearing each other's voice suddenly makes it not just individualistic but actually makes us part of a community that's singing this together so Please join in with this one. Love to hear your voices.
She was on the verge of thinking that her soul is lost and sinking. There is peace for the restless one. And you, you were my only hope. But could you really care for me? I even asked the Holy Ghost, Are you the one I love the most? Are song by Brian Wilson who was the um, main uh, songwriter composer for the Beach Boys but I think he's one of the um, one of the greatest composers of the 20th century I think um, which comes as a surprise to some people to hear to hear that but 
But he also has, um, he also had, had a lot of struggles, has had a lot of struggles uh, with, with mental illness in his life. Um, and so he knows what it's, what it's like to be a person in need of mercy, and he knows what it's like to be a person in need of connection uh, in relationship with the other. And so I thought this song would be kind of an interesting place for us to end tonight uh, with our confession uh, before we um, go forward into the table. Uh, so it's not a very difficult song. Once you kind of understand it, please feel free to join in, or if you'd rather just listen, that's okay too.
So in many ways, I think the wilderness is an aspect of all of our lives. It's pretty ordinary. And I think perhaps that's part of what scared Pharaoh, is how ordinary acts and ordinary places and spaces could transform and change things. In the same way, I think that the Last Supper was a pretty ordinary moment of food and drink. Yet, the embodied acts of Jesus breaking bread and pouring wine turned the most ordinary items into holy, transformational interactions and intricacies to permeate we, the people, and the world. For we know that it is at the table that distinction of class, status, and ability are erased, and all persons are equal and valued. And so each time that we gather at the table to engage in this simple yet profound act, we must ask ourselves, what would it mean if Eucharist were not merely a symbol or a sign act, but a transformational moment where we who break bread together are not merely persons feeding each other, but engagers in holy transformational encounters with God? What would it mean if after partaking in the Eucharist we truly believed that we left the table a bit differently than when we came to it. And therefore, who we are is just a little bit different than when we entered this space. What would it mean if we took embodied kingdom living seriously? Minister and poet Jan Richardson articulates the table this way. For all things rising, out of the hiddenness of shadows, out of the weight of despair, out of the brokenness of pain, out of the constrictions of compliance, out of the rigidity of stereotypes, out of the prison of prejudice, for all things rising into life, into hope, into healing, into power, into freedom, into justice, we pray, O God for all things rising here. And so, with all things rising within us, within this Emmaus Way community, and within our broader community and world, we come to gather around the table with questions, mystery, and hope to serve one another and be transformed. We are well aware that the kingdom of God has not yet fully come, The journey is not yet complete, but somehow, together at this table, we will find refreshment, hope, and power to make more steps in this world toward radical love and mercy as we leave this place. We will be able to take more steps that make the pharaohs of our day quake. So come. Let us serve one another the bread and wine or juice by saying the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, knowing and believing God's kingdom is rising, even now. 
come to the table.